I say black, you say. I say hot, you say. I say big, you say. I say happy, you say. Um, one more, I say weak, you say. You got it. Yeah, that's the way it works. These are contrasts, sometimes they're opposites. And we ask the question, what do they do for us? Well, they clarify things. Uh, they help us to see more clearly. Paul uses contrasts in the next section in Ephesians. And um, so if you have a Bible and can turn to it, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, the verses we just read. We need to understand our relationship to Jesus so we can live it out uh, day by day. And so we're going to look at truths that take us in that direction. The topic that's before us today is oneness. The oneness of God's people. We are one regardless of our background. Christ has made us one. We belong to him. We belong to each other. We have one head. And that's the point that Paul's going to develop. Now, in these verses, Paul lays out our oneness by focusing on three time-related topics. He talks about our past, our present, and our future. The past is in verses 11 and 12. The present is in verses 13 to 18, and the future is in verses 19 to 22. But before we go there, let's think about where we have come as we've been working through the book of Ephesians. Up to this point, we notice that God has a grand plan. That's in the first half of chapter 1. Can he affect it? Yes, he can. And the second half of chapter 1 is God can do his plan because of the power of the resurrection. But what's the point of God's plan? That's the beginning of chapter 2. You look at verse 4 and you'll see his intent is to demonstrate his love to us. And so now we finally, in this end of the second chapter, we've looked at his plan, his power, the point of his plan, and now what we're going to do is focus our attention on his people. So what is it about your past? Well, please look at verses 11 and 12 now. What was it like before you were a devoted follower of Christ? Verses 11 and 12 together have an overarching, controlling verb. And you'll see it right there at the beginning of verse 11. It says, therefore, what? Remember. Yeah, remember. And then we get to verse 12, and it begins with remember. Yeah, remember, remember. Part of the Christian life is looking back to the past remembering. And so now the question is, what are we to remember? Well, Paul says, remember, once you Gentiles in the flesh were called uncircumcision by what is called circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. What is that gibberish? What is Paul talking about? Well, uh, he's writing to the church at Ephesus. Ephesus is in, in modern-day Turkey. 
and it was a largely, if not exclusive, Gentile congregation. They were probably first-generation believers. And um, that is to say, they didn't have Jewish origins. Uh, physical descendants of Abraham were in a special place. God had given them a sign, the sign of circumcision. It was like a uh, brand on a cow. It identified people as belonging physically to the Jewish nation. But the term uncircumcision captures a little bit for us the way in which Jewish people viewed those that were not Jewish. They had a, um, a system of thinking about life like this. There are two groups of people in the world. Some are Jews. We're the people of God. And the others are Gentiles. The others are uncircumcised. And it captures something of the disdain that Jews had for non-Jews. If you remember in Acts chapter 11, uh, Peter comes to the Jerusalem council and people accuse him. They say, you were hanging out with uncircumcised people and even eating with them. What's the matter with that? Jews viewed Gentiles as unclean. And they also viewed um, uh, the movement of uncleanness in one direction. If you're unclean and somebody who's clean is around you, the clean person can be unclean by association. It's kind of like this. If you have COVID and I hang out with you, the COVID might come to me. It's very unlikely that my health will move in the other direction and remove your COVID contamination. So, uncircumcised people, eh, Jews didn't have a very good regard for them. And so Paul says now, remember, you used to be viewed as uncircumcised, as outsiders by those that are insiders. Have you ever felt like an outsider? Studying this passage was really helpful to me because it enabled me to think about the multiple times over the course of my life that I viewed myself and thought about, thought about myself as an outsider. Kindergarten and first grade, I was in Catskill, New York. Besides my one cousin, I didn't know a soul in the school system. And then, partway through first grade, my parents moved from New York State to Massachusetts, and I went, ended up in the Lanesboro Elementary School. And I knew nobody there. And then, as a seventh grader, I had to go to North Junior High School down in the big city of Pittsfield. And then as a 10th grader, I transferred to Mount Greylock Regional High School, another shift, all these transitions, and the transitions continued, went off to college. Then I went to seminary. And I'll tell you, when I went to seminary, I really felt like an outsider. I'd grown up in a, an independent, non-denominational church that my dad pastored. 
I'm around a Hebrew professor who, when I walked in the door the first day of class, started speaking to me and the other classmates in Hebrew. Talk about feeling like an outsider. And to have that punctuated, some of my classmates responded to him in Hebrew. And the list could go on and on. Well, things for the people at Ephesus were much worse, much more exacerbated than any sense of being an outsider that I may ever have experienced. Look at verse 12. He says, remember that you were at that time, back in the past, you were what? Separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Back then, you were really an outsider with capital O-U-T-S-I-D-E-R flashing neon sign outsider letters. Ignorant of God's promises. No hope. I, I mean, this is the most outsider-ness you could experience. And it is a sad, sad, just think about it. I mean, doesn't it just want to make, make you want to fall down on the floor and cry when you think about people being in this outsider condition, no hope without God in the world? Debbie and I have heard lots of stories about people feeling like social and spiritual outsiders. I didn't even know that God had any promises that applied to me, said one. I didn't really think I was estranged from God. After all, I thought, well, I'm, I'm a pretty decent person, aren't I? Said somebody else. Now, how can it be? How can it be that a person without Christ is an outsider and doesn't even understand that? Well, it goes right to the verses that Agilon developed for us last week, those opening verses of chapter 2. What's it like to be spiritually dead? No spiritual life, excluded from the life of God, total inability to love God, ignorance of him and his word and his ways, non-understanding of spiritual things, delusion and self-deception, we might say. So the question that's before us right now is, what was it like for you back then in your before Christ days? Which were the things that you loved that are no longer attractive to you? What place did God and his people have in your life back then? Let's just pause here for a moment and think about this idea of living without God and without hope in the world. How many hopeless people are there in our world today? Well, 
People who study these things tell us they abound by the millions. There are what? A little over seven billion people on planet Earth right now. And uh, the guesstimate is that 155,000 people will die today who don't know the Lord. 155,000 just today. And tomorrow, 155,000. And Tuesday, 155,000. That's people dying without Christ at the rate of two per second. So the Lord says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from their way and live. Turn, turn from your evil way. Why would you die? And it helps us understand Jesus, too, saying, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray, the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth laborers into his harvest field. Well, this is your hopeless past. That's the point that Paul is making with the Ephesian church. Remember it. And it comes to us as an imperative. Remember and keep on remembering your past. That's part of the Christian life, to reflect on what you were back then. Well, what about the present? Where are you now? You were lost, but the Lord raised up somebody and he came to you or she came to you and presented the gospel and the Lord moved in your heart and you received Christ. And you're saved now. And you're in a totally new place and that Paul explains in the next section, verses 13 to 18. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Another contrast. Now, this idea of being brought near is about access to God. It's the language of reconciliation. It's about belonging. It's about having a new community. It's about having been an outsider, but now being an insider. Jesus has made this profound difference in you. And notice, please, in verses 14 and then 16 and 18, that your experience is like what happened to Paul and what happened to the Ephesians. Look at verse 14. Christ himself is our peace. And then verse 14 again. He has made us both one. And then verse 16. That he might reconcile us both to God. And then verse 18. Through Christ we both have access to the Father. And Paul tells us how this happened. You were brought near by the blood of Christ. Being spiritually dead, as Paul describes us at the beginning of chapter 2, you owed a debt to God that you could never pay. 
I don't care how much you give to the church. I don't care how faithful you were in attending church. I don't know how much you dedicated yourself to the activities of the church or your neighbors. There's a debt that you have to pay God you could never pay. But the gospel says that Jesus died on the cross and in his death and resurrection, he picked up the tab. He paid the debt that you could never pay. And in that transaction, you were adopted to God's forever family, never to be disinherited, never to be disowned. The sacrifice of Christ is central to this change from what you were to what you are now. And so verses 14 and 15 say, he is our peace. He's made us one, having, having broken down the dividing wall of hostility. Now, verse 15 begins with an interesting phrase. By abolishing the law of commandments. And we might read those and think to ourselves, oh, wait a minute. Is it the case that Jesus' death on the cross has somehow wiped out the Old Testament? Is that what he's saying? No. What separates people who are near to God from people who are far away from God? What separates them, what makes people outsiders rather than insiders is sin. That's the barrier. You're guilty. There's condemnation. Because of your guilt, you deserve God's judgment. But Christ removed that by his death on the cross. And so I take the words, abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances as shorthand for this. God's just indictment that you're guilty has been removed because of Christ's work as our Savior. Because of Jesus, there's no condemnation no matter how bad you may feel about some of your failures in the past. God's law is not irrelevant. It justly condemns you. That's its purpose, as Agilon said this morning before we read the law. The point is for us to see our sins, understand our helpless condition, and move toward Christ for what only he can provide. Christ has fully satisfied the demands of the law. God the Father has given you the Holy Spirit, enabling you to obey all that he requires of you. And that is very good news. And so Paul's point here is to show us that the Lord's sacrifice is not simply about Jesus and me. It's about Jesus and us. Christ has removed the, the tension between you and God. By his, he has done that. He's done it for you. And he's also done it for you. 
And he's also done it for you. All of us who believe in him have been declared not guilty, and that's what binds us together. We have one head, Jesus Christ, who has made us part of his family. Now look at the end of verse 15, please. He made us both one, having broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Christ has removed the basis for tension between us and God, but he has also removed the basis for tension between us and people of different ethnicities, different genetic backgrounds. He's removed them. And this is just so helpful to us. Now, we try to illustrate what we see in this second part about our present from a couple different angles. I was once in Istanbul talking to a young Turk, and one of the things that I said to Ali over and over again was this. Somebody has to pay for sins. Somebody has to pay for sins. You're gonna pay for sins, or somebody else will have to pay for sins, i.e. the Lord Jesus. The next spring, he and his wife, Gulai, uh, came to the US, he's on business, and they came to our house in Delaware, and he hardly gets through the door to our house and he says, we must talk about who pays for sins. That is the key question for everybody. Who pays for your sins? Now, illustrating it from the other side, I once served in a church where people weren't very well grounded in this whole idea of Jesus being the only savior and weren't grounded well in the Old Testament's authoritative demands on New Testament Christians. I stopped by a ladies' Bible study one morning and was met with a barrage of criticism that was totally unexpected, and the essence of it was this. We don't like studying the Old Testament. It's all blood and guts. We want to study something where God's more loving, like in the New Testament. Couldn't we do that? Do we have to do this Old Testament stuff? Now, I want to say, I wasn't the one who picked the curriculum. In Ephesians, we have God's plan, his grand plan. We have his power. We have the point of his plan to show us his love. And as his people, we are called to live lives of holiness enabled by the power of his spirit. So Jesus paid for all our sins and now we have him living in us, enabling us to walk in newness of life. Well, one more illustration. In that same congregation, uh, there was a young mother who started coming with her little girl who was, I don't know, six or seven. She's really a cute kid. And I thought to myself, oh, the, this is a nice family and it looks like they're gonna fit and we ho I hope we can serve them. And then one Sunday, she took me off on the side and she said, look, I don't like this. I don't like you talking about blood and sacrifices and death. I don't want my daughter to be taught these things. 
and that was the last we saw of her. Your past, you were once an outsider to God, hopelessly separated from him, and now you're present. You're not an outsider. You're an insider, and you have been made an insider by the blood of Christ through which all of your sins have been removed from you as far as the east is from the west. Well, what about your future? Let's look at verses 19 to 22. Paul lays out a series of truths here. Uh, look at the beginning of verse 20. What does he say there? Your life and that of all the people of God is built on a solid foundation. What is it? The foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The writings of the Old and New Testament are the foundation for the people of God. Covenant Church is in a play, is a place where we affirm the truth and the sufficiency of Scripture. That's what we live by. You say, I think we ought to have ballet next Sunday morning. And I say, well, help me. Where does the Bible teach that? That's our foundation, and it's an unchanging one because God has spoken once. We have the Bible as his final authority that guides what we do. Next, the end of verse 20. In God's grand plan, he has, he's constructing a building uh, the foundation is the apostles and the prophets. What's the cornerstone? Jesus is the cornerstone. Now verses 20 and 21. Our Lord is creating a new structure. What is it? In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That is your identity. You are being co-built. You are being co-fitted into the temple that the Lord Jesus is building. And you're being co-fitted, you're being co-built with all the other people at Covenant Church, but not just those, not just these around you, but with people all around the world. He is building a temple for himself, and we get to be a part of it. And so verses 20 and 21, this construction project is a dwelling of God in the Spirit. The Lord is bringing all his people together, from Sinking Spring to Shanghai, from uh, Dallas to Dubai, from Milwaukee to Miami. It's a global gathering for his glory. And so tying in chapter 1, verse 10, where we're told about God's grand plan, this building project is on the way to the Lord consummating all, bringing all things together in Christ. So this section is about the unity of the people of God, irrespective of ethnicity, 
irrespective of genetics, irrespective of where you were born and raised. Doesn't matter. God is doing an amazing thing. Now, we could never have crafted the composition of Covenant Church. How would any of you know that I was raised in Western Massachusetts and that I would be a fit for here? You wouldn't know. You wouldn't even know to go looking for me. And the same thing applies to you. How would, uh, how would we know that you would be a good fit here? We wouldn't, but the Lord did, and he brought us all together. God is throwing a big party, and he's inviting every believer to come to the celebration. And so one of the points of relevance here is this. This speaks, then, to any hints of disunity, tensions at home, divisions in local churches, struggles between groups in congregations, any and all undermine what God is doing. And so God challenges us, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So we now want to ask ourselves this question. Of what value is this particular passage? Say as we begin a new week. Well, here are three takeaways that I intend to pursue. First one is this. I intend to think more about my past. What was it like back then? What was it like for me not to have hope? What was it like to be excluded from God? I want to marinate on that. Now, as I do it, I also need to regularly preach the gospel to myself because what I was, I'm not now. And I need to be reminded of that. I am, in fact, a new creature in Christ. Whatever the past was, it's gone. He's making me new. And then I'm going to make, uh, I'm going to look for ways to make meaningful contact with you and with everybody else here who's at Covenant. Uh, I'm going to think about myself this way. We're one, but we struggle with our sense of belonging from time to time. And I know what it's like when somebody takes the initiative with me and makes me feel welcome. So I want to be that for you. I want to be an initiator. I want to say, hey, I want to get to know you better. And I'm talking about little kids all the way up to adults. To the extent that I'm able, I want you to feel loved here at Covenant. I want you to feel cared for. I want you to feel welcome. And so I want to initiate with you for the sake of our oneness. And then there's one other thing. I'm going to pray for more unity in our homes, marriages, families, in our small groups, in our weekly gatherings here Sunday by Sunday. I'm going to pray for more unity. So I'm going to do these three things. I'm going to remember, I'm going to reach out, I'm going to pray. I'm wondering, would you join me? Would you take it upon yourself to say, I want to make sure that I have contact with people so they feel welcome here.
I'm going to get outside my own comfort zone for the sake of somebody else that is already part of the family of God. Through his blood, the Lord has made us one. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this really encouraging passage. Pray that to a greater and greater extent we would be people who reflect the oneness that you have established through your sacrifice on the cross. May we be a people that accept one another, welcome one another, love one another, care for one another. Help us to grow in that regard, we pray. In Jesus' name.